Great to be here with you this morning. My name's Marshall. I'm one of the pastors here at Southwest, if I haven't met you before. Today we're starting a new series, only a two-week series, on Advent. Uh, Advent is describing the time of year where we remember Jesus' coming. Um, The first two weeks of Advent are remembering Jesus' second coming, and then um, the, the next two weeks are remembering Jesus' first coming, which is, of course, Christmas, Jesus' birth. So today, we're looking at Jesus' second coming, or related to his second coming, uh, and we're looking at our future and waiting for our future. Let's, um, let's come before God and pray before we start. Father God, we thank you for the privilege of uh, coming before you and looking at your word and hearing from you. We ask that as we look at the future hope that we have in Jesus, that today you may speak to our hearts and give us ears to listen. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I hate waiting. I also hate shopping. For me, the combination of those two things is lethal. Sometimes out of a a misguided sense of obligation, I'll I'll allow myself to be dragged along to Westfield or some such place by Julie uh, while she goes shopping. And then the dreaded words come. Just wait here while I pop into Big W. I'll only be a minute. Well, I know from bitter experience that eons of endless waiting are in store for me. I think part of my brain is telling me that I'll be stuck there in, in, in this nightmarish eternal shopping expedition left to rot without coffee or internet or food. More seriously though, I did find myself waiting for months in limbo when we came back from East Asia in 2013. We discovered in November 2012 that we weren't able to go back to East Asia. We were devastated. It was followed by months of waiting. Waiting to hear of new opportunities, potential new openings for a place to go overseas to serve. But for ages there seemed to be nothing. It was agonising because it felt like there was no end in sight. But then eventually we heard about, from, about some people in Taiwan. We looked into it and things gradually fell into place. And then finally an agreement was made between our sending organisation CMS and a group called Team Taiwan. A decision was made and we knew where we were headed. We still had some waiting to do, but now we knew where we were going, it made all the difference. We knew where the road was leading. We would finally reach our goal of getting back onto the mission field. Well, today's passage is also about waiting. It's waiting for something with an end to it as well. It's waiting for something with a goal. Romans 8, Paul tells us that our future with God, the glory to come, is our goal and it's worth the wait. And we can be confident of that future because of something that happened in the past. Something that we've looked at in the last couple of weeks, that God gave his son for us on the cross and Paul goes on to say because of that world changing event we can be confident that while we wait none of the troubles and pain of this life 
can never separate us from God's love. And as we come to our passage in our first section, Paul starts off by saying that the troubles and the pain of this life are very real. But what we're waiting for, something he calls glory, is so good that it makes our suffering now fade into the background. I've got my beeper once again. So our first section is, in verses 18 to 23, Paul introduces the idea of waiting. Waiting not for God, but for glory. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. But as we wait, we face suffering. Look at verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The Bible's very realistic, isn't it, about what we can expect in life. And the consistent message is that there will be hardship and suffering. To be human is to be suffer physical weakness. We get sick and psychological and emotional struggles. And on top of that, we're told that as Christians, we suffer for following Jesus. In fact, it's probably what Paul has in view here, suffering for being a Christian. In this country, we don't face death or, um, or torture for our beliefs, but we may f- face suffering. Our friends thinking that we're weird, being rejected possibly by our family even for our faith. Suffering comes in many shapes and sizes. We can't avoid it. There's no escaping it. And the reason for that is that we live in a fallen world. From Genesis 3, right at the beginning of the Bible, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, the whole of humanity has been under a curse ever since. And Paul tells us that the curse affects the whole of creation as well. Verse 19, creation waits along with us look at verse 20 for the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God subjected to frustration in bondage to decay We don't have to look very far to see the reality of that, do we? Fires in California and more recently Queensland. The devastating effects of climate change all over the world. Huge parts of North Africa being swallowed up by the Sahara Desert. It's all part of the curse. Adam was told that the land would be affected because of what he did. That that the land, the the whole of creation would be affected by his disobedience and we still suffer the effects of that. It can all be pretty depressing, can't it? Worrying about what kind of a world that we're going to leave for our children. And sometimes our own suffering is so intense that we can't even see that far. We can't see beyond our own horizon of how we're going to get through the stress of work or the pain of illness, or the isolation of depression, 
and mental struggles. But Paul says here that there's a bigger picture that puts all those things into perspective. He says that the glory that will be revealed in us is going to make our struggles fade by comparison. When we understand where it is that we're headed, when we get the picture of our ultimate purpose, we'll be able to wait for what's to come. It's a bit like running a marathon. I don't know if you've ever run a marathon or a significant running race. I've run three marathons and believe me, they were all painful. The only thing that kept me going was knowing that there was a, a goal, knowing that there was an end in sight, getting over that finish line. It wasn't getting a prize because I'd come in 2,000th or something ridiculous like that, but it was a satisfaction of achieving running that race and finishing. I had a purpose and that kept me going. It's not like waiting for Godot. I don't know if you've ever heard of the play written by Samuel Beckett by that name, but it's actually quite a famous play. It's been going for 65 years and it's still hugely popular. Very quickly, it's about two men, Vladimir and Estragon, waiting for someone called Godot. We never know whether Godot is real or not. Some people actually say it's, it represents God. We don't know. Neither of them is sure whether they've met Godot or not, but they're pretty sure they've got the right time and the right place. It's a pretty bleak, gloomy scene, just the two, two men and a dead tree. Two other guys make an appearance during the play, but they pretty much just stand around doing nothing. Neither knows why they're waiting. They talk about the pointlessness of what they're doing. More than once, I actually think about suicide but neither of them has any means of killing themselves. The final scene is the second day ending. Still, Godot hasn't come. They talk about leaving because there's no point in still waiting, but as the curtain falls, they're just standing on the stage as they have all along, still waiting. For Vladimir and Estragon, waiting is unbearable because... There doesn't seem to be any point to it. They don't know what they're waiting for. One of the reasons that play is so popular is that people have made the connection between pointlessly waiting for Godot and living a meaningless life here on earth, which so many people think that life's about. But Paul insists that as God's people, we aren't waiting for Godot. We're not pointlessly suffering life here on earth because there's something worth waiting for. There's something in store for us and that's our future glory. So what is this glory? Glory in the Bible is closely associated with who God is and his character, his perfection, his greatness. When Jesus predicted his own death in John 12, 23, he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He had in view how the cross would reveal who he is as King and Saviour of the world. So when Paul says 
that glory will be revealed in us in verse 18, he has in mind, I think, that when we are with Jesus, we will reflect some of that glory. A little bit like a solar panel. You know how a solar panel on a hot day reflects the sun and it's almost blinding? Well, in the same way, to an extent, we will reflect God's glory. But there's also another aspect to that glory. As well as reflecting God's glory, we'll actually have a glory of our own. Now we're struggling with weak and decaying bodies. We struggle with getting old and sick. I'm facing the depressing fact that my I'm not going to probably run another marathon. I'm down to half marathons now. And each year that I run it, I'm probably going to get slower. My best years are behind me. But Paul is talking about a day when we'll have perfect bodies, glorified bodies. The new creation isn't the popular idea of heaven where we're going to kind of float around on clouds playing harps. C.S. Lewis talks about the new creation being more real than anything else we've experienced here on earth. And he says that what we have now is just a shadow land. It's just, it's just a, a pale reflection of what's going to come. In verse 19, Paul says, The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. That's us, sons and daughters of God. That's who we'll be. Now we're only half of who we meant to be. We twisted and wounded by sin and corruption. But a day is coming that we look forward to when we'll be glorious. We'll be fully human. We'll be who we were created to be. And creation will be renewed and healed as well. Have a look at Isaiah 11, chapter 6. It gives a lovely picture of the renewal of creation. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. That's our future. We're part of that. It's a future worth waiting for. Waiting for glory. Paul then goes on to say that this hope of our future glory is a powerful thing. Second point, verses 24 to 27. Verse 24, in this hope we were saved. Notice how it's past tense. By believing in this future with Jesus in the new creation, because of his death and resurrection, we have already been saved. In other words, it's the hope that we have from believing the gospel. Without hope, life becomes unlivable, doesn't it? George Bernard Shaw was a famous playwright and author and he was also a well-known atheist and free-thinking philosopher. This is what Shaw had to say in some of his last writings. The science to which I pin my faith is bankrupt. Its councils, which should have established the millennium, led instead directly to the suicide of Europe. I believed them once, 
In their name, I helped to destroy the faith of millions of worshippers in the temples of a thousand creeds. And now they look at me and witness the great tragedy, tragedy of an atheist who has lost his faith. At the end of his life, Shaw's conclusion was that his view of science, which left no room for God or anything mysterious or supernatural in this world, was bankrupt because it led to hopelessness. Even atheists through the ages have ended up inventing a hope because, their way of, because the conclusion of their beliefs leads them to hopelessness. But in Romans 8, Paul wants us to know that our hope is a real hope. It's not based on a kind of desperate leap in the dark because life is unbearable without it. It's the certain knowledge of our future glory with Jesus. It's a certain future because of a historical event in the past that we'll come to see in a minute. Paul goes on to say that as we wait in hope, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Verse 26. That's because we don't know what to pray for. But by God's Spirit, He helps us to pray. And the Spirit is also interceding for us. Verse 27. What I think this is saying is that as we wait for our future in the new creation... Because we are human, we are weak. We, we, we don't know how to keep our eyes on God. We don't know how to keep our focus. We waver in our faith. We struggle to keep going. But God's Spirit is helping us. He's holding our hand and leading us forward towards our hope, towards our goal, strengthening our faith, keeping our eyes on God. And that should be a great encouragement because it tells us that we're not alone. We're not alone in our Christian walk. God himself makes sure that we get there in the end. Well, Paul keeps going on in the next section. Section 3, verses 28 to 30, to reassure us that as we wait, all things work together for our good. Verse 28, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, in our world, there's a kind of a secular version of that, isn't there? The belief that everything's going to be all right. Have you, have you heard people say that? People say it all the time, don't they? Yeah, it's going to work out. It's going to be okay. It's, it's the optimist's creed, isn't it? I stumbled upon a little gem in a song put out last year by Tim and Mo. Has anyone heard of Tim and Mo? I, I don't know what songs are in and what songs are out. But anyway, I stumbled upon this. It's called Everything is Going to Be Alright. And it's a little gem. The, the lyrics are golden. They'll move you to tears. Here's a little excerpt. The future is going to be confusing. Don't let it get to you. In times like these, you know, it's hard to keep your head above the water. In times like these, you're not alone. Not bad so far. They could actually be Christian. But then, then it goes on. Everything's going to be all right. And then flashing up in neon lights, it says, I am awesome. Everything's going to be all right. Flashing up. You are here. 
Everything's going to be all right. Breathe. Everything's going to be all right. Think outside the box. Everything's going to be right. Yes to all. And then finally, everything's going to be all right. Sex. Gold, isn't it? (laughs) Doesn't that instill you with hope? Well, of course it's nonsense, isn't it? It's another blind leap in the dark. And people do it all the time, don't they? Because we need to tell ourselves that there's hope. Even if there's no reason for it. But the difference is, as believers, we do have a reason for it. As believers, we're not taking a blind leap in the dark. Because what Paul says about God working for our good once again, is based on something that's already happened in the past. Let's look at, look at me with verses 29 and 30. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Paul reminds us that if we love God, verse 28, if we belong to him, we were marked out to be his right from the beginning. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, it says that we were chosen to be his from the very cre- from the, before the creation of the world. Imagine that, from before the creation of the world. God already knew us and chose us. That means... He knew Anson and chose him to be conformed to the likeness of his son to become like Jesus. He chose Michelle to be, to, be, to be his before the world began. He knew the number of hairs on each one of our heads before we were born because he wanted each one of us to be a unique individual living in a renewed creation, walking with him, living with him forever. And notice the final step in the, in the process, the end of verse 30. Those he justified, he also glorified. There's that glory word again, isn't it? Only here Paul uses it in the past tense. Did you notice that? He's driving home the reality that our future is so certain that Paul speaks of it as if it has already happened. And in God's eyes, it's that certain as well. For us, that future seems so far off and and we sometimes struggle to see it, but, but not to God. It's a certain as all these other steps that have happened in the past. And to God, it's as if it has already happened. We are glorified. We are with him forever. And so we can have hope because our future is so certain. And so because of that, God works out all things for his good. But what does that actually mean? What is our good anyway? Does it mean that the things that I wish for will all come true? 
Does it mean that we'll be spared sickness and struggle and pain? And does it mean that we'll be able to live a life of prosperity and ease? Hold on to that thought because the last part of our passage addresses that issue. But before we'll get, we get there, we'll look at the, our last section. Nothing can come between us. Verses 31 to 38. Paul assures us that because God is working for our good, then we can know that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. If God is for us, who can be against us? And he continues this theme of basing the certainty of what will happen in the future on what has already happened in the past. Because of what, how can we know that God is for us? Because of what his son, Christ Jesus, has done on the cross. Look at verse 34. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Hear these words. There's no longer any condemnation for us. No anger from God. Before we trusted in Jesus, our sins did come before between us and God. We did face God's anger. We did face condemnation. But now, because Jesus has died for us, that's all gone. The slate is wiped clean. As Paul says, Jesus has now been raised to life and intercedes for us at the right hand of God. That means that Jesus the King, with all God's authority, is now on our side. He's there batting for us. If the King of the universe is for us, who can be against us? I think we all struggle at times to feel close to God, to feel his love. Our feelings are all over the place. If I'm tired, I don't have the same excitement about my relationship with God as, as when I do in the morning after I've had my first cup of coffee. But why this truth, about, which is the issue Paul will address, sorry, or if things are going badly, we especially find it hard to keep our eyes on God. But why this truth about this historical event, the death of one man upon a Roman cross, why it's so crucial to our faith is that it's an ironclad, dependable, unchangeable reality that assures us of God's love for us. How much does he love us? So much that he did not spare even his only son, to go to the cross for us. Because we look back at the cross, we can look forward with confidence to the future and know that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so Paul goes on to list a whole bunch of things that might threaten our trust in God, things that threaten to shake our confidence, and the conclusion is that none of these things, not one of them, can ever come between us and God. I said a moment ago that this final section would help us to understand, verse 28, what, what God's good for us is. 
Let's look at the things that Paul lists, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Trouble, hardship, death, persecution, and Paul says that he faces death all day long. What he's saying is that these things will come. They are an inevitable part of life. We're not spared pain and difficulty just because we're Christian. In fact, because we're Christian, we can expect it. But the point is that none of these things, no matter how disastrous and awful they are, can take us away from God's love. So the good that God has for us cannot mean that he will spare us from pain and suffering, can it? It must mean something else. Our ultimate good is wrapped up in knowing God and being with him. Because he is the author of life. Everything good comes from him. And so when we think about our good, it must involve our future with God. It must involve our future destiny. Our ultimate good is getting to the finish line of life and being glorified in a new creation, as it says in verse 30, living with God forever. Verse 28 says, In all things God works for our good. He uses all things in life, all circumstances, even the hard things. In fact, I would say, and I think Paul is saying, that he especially uses the hard things to work out for our good. Because hard things make us more like Jesus. They make us more patient. They develop hope in us. They help us rely not on our strength, but on God's. To put it another way, our glory actually grows out of our suffering. It's a bit like running a marathon. I said before, running is painful. In the middle of it, I kept telling myself, why, why was I so stupid to enrol in this marathon? But, but eventually I would stumble over the finish line and the reward of running it, the reward of finishing, actually grows out of the pain that I went through. Does that make sense? Because it's so painful, then it's so rewarding to actually persevere and finish it. God uses our present sufferings to prepare us for the glory that he has in store for us. As we suffer, it forces us to turn to God. It enables us to grow in our character, patience, perseverance, hope. When I think about the times that I've grown most in my walk with God, I think without exception they have all been times of significant suffering. 
example to finish off I want to think about for a minute about what this passage means for us I want to suggest two things that we can get out of it today number one is to learn to suffer well suffering is an art that I don't think we're very good at as Western Christians because we're so wealthy we're used to money being able to buy whatever we want and that creates an ex expectation that it's normal for life to be cruisy it's normal for things to go well we take it for granted that we'll have what we need and then we'll have money and resources and time to do what we want to do on top of that holidays hobbies do, doing things that we enjoy for us it's normal but when things go pear-shaped my first response is to say is to complain to God and anyone else who'll listen and say why what are you doing God we lose our visa why God we have to come back from the mission field why God what are you doing I don't know what it is for you but I'm pretty confident there'll be some things in your life maybe they're in the past maybe you're going through them now perhaps family relationships are breaking apart or parents who don't like you coming to church maybe it's sickness you're struggling with or loneliness or a job that's a drag and a burden God what are you doing but what we've seen today is that suffering is what we should expect it doesn't take God by surprise it doesn't come between us and God nothing can separate us from his love because of what Jesus has done on the cross in fact God may send suffering our way as part of his plan to mold us and prepare us for the glory that is to come number two the second thing I think we can learn from this passage is the importance of waiting I said before that I'm terrible at waiting and I think most of us do struggle with it and I actually think that our culture works against us here because we're told by everything around us that we shouldn't have to wait we deserve to have that new TV that phone upgrade that shiny new car and to have it now if we haven't got the money when we can get it on credit there is no reason why you have to wait Aussies have a huge level of personal debt because we're not prepared to wait for what we want we get it on credit and I think that can overflow to our Christian life as well we want to experience God's blessing and power in its fullness and yes Jesus did promise the abundant life here on earth life to the full yes we should look for a close intimate walk with God but we need to know that before we die this side of eternity or before Jesus returns whichever one comes first things aren't going to be perfect 
we will only have those things in part. The best is yet to come. We're not glorified yet. That will only come. When Jesus comes back or we die. We should understand that the best is yet to come. We shouldn't be content with this world, having this world as our true goal, what we were created for. What we were created for is our perfected, glorified bodies in the new creation, living face to face with King Jesus. C.S. Lewis used an analogy to describe the fact that we too easily pleased as Christians. We become too content with this life and we lose our longing for what's to come. He says that it's being like it's like being content to make mud pies in a in a dirty puddle when we can have the promise of a be- beach beachside holiday. Have a look th- at the future that we have in store for us in Revelation chapter 21 1 to 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and with their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain the old order of things has passed away let's pray Father we thank you so much for this promise we thank you that 